Dognitive therapy contains material which may be distressing to some listeners, such as domestic violence, animal cruelty, and mental health issues. A podcast one production. <laughs> Tell us about Grungle. Okay. Um, <laughs> I met Dung... Oh, Dungle. <laughs> Going well. Yeah. All right. That's Freddie, and he's talking about his dog, Grungle. The reason he's so nervous is because Freddie is talking about something that's hard to talk about. Love. And love can make us do some crazy things, like making your dog your best man at your wedding. So the reason that we did it in the Turak house rather at the British Embassy in, in Melbourne City was because they allowed Grungle to come. So it, it did add on a, about $1,000, um, but was worth every penny because it meant Grungle could be our best man and he, he stood there um, between us um, looking absolutely fabulous in a little rainbow bow tie and tuxedo that my, my mum had knitted. <laughs> Why was it so important to have Grungle at your wedding? He is our best man. He's always there for you. He's always waiting for you. Um, he's always excited to go anywhere with you. Um, he's just such a... Uh, he loves life so much, and I feel very lucky to, to share my life with him. My name's Laura V, and welcome to Dognitive Therapy, a series that explores how human behaviour shapes dogs' behaviour. Today's episode is all about love. I spoke with Deb Tranter of Oscars Law. It's a foundation that aims to eradicate puppy farms right across Australia and the world. And the story of how it started begins with a cute puppy called Oscar. I caught up with Deb and she told me how it all began and revealed that sometimes love shines brightest from times of darkness. Deb, tell us about Oscars Law. Oscar's Law is an organisation I founded in 2010 after I rescued a little dog which I named Oscar from a puppy factory. Um, And that was the first dog that was taken from me and returned to the puppy factory. So I had been doing this for 18 years um, and managed to save a lot of dogs and rehome them into loving homes. But Oscar was the first dog that was taken from me and returned to the puppy factory. Um, And that was, as you can imagine, incredibly distressing time. Um, And it was a time where I really went through a lot of self-reflection and Mm. just thought about what I'd been doing for 18 years and I felt a complete failure. I thought that I had failed this little dog. Um, What I was doing obviously wasn't working. Um, that, you know, this dog was returned to the puppy factory. And I was at a point in my life where I thought, well, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to quit and someone else can have a go. And um, I ended up going away for a few days just on my own um, to try and get over this period of my life. And it just, I was trying to think of ways or a a piece of legislation that I could use to get Oscar back. And I was sort of looking outside the box of the usual animal welfare legislation and was looking at different pieces of legislation. And I just kept saying to myself, I wish there was a law that I could use to help get Oscar back. I need um, an Oscar's law. And that just sort of, in that moment, I decided to 
campaign in that direction and start a group called Oscars Law. And it was a very different direction. It was to not throw up graphic images of cruelty that really were disengaging people Mm -hmm. and making them powerless. I wanted to engage people and get them to fight in their communities to get laws changed. So Oscar's Law was really a way of empowering people, educating them and making them realise that they have a lot of power in their hands. Where did your love for dogs come from? I think um, my first dog was a rescue dog that my dad got from the lost dog's home for my eighth birthday. It was a a beagle. Um, And I had a really difficult childhood, um, a lot of domestic violence, um, a very unhappy childhood. So that dog, Tammy, became everything to me, my best friend. Um, You know, when I was a little girl alone at night, Tammy would be on my bed and I'd tell Tammy everything. Tammy didn't judge me. Tammy was always there. Um, And Tammy was the one constant, reliable thing in my life. So I developed as most kids do, I think, this loving bond with with my dog, Tammy. And I had Tammy till I was about 16 or 17 and then she died of old age. And I never got another dog because I was so distraught when Tammy died. I thought, I cannot go through this again. And I didn't get another dog until I was married with children. I think my kids were about two or three and another rescue dog just came into my life. Um, But, yeah, that's that's sort of where the, the... the bond, I think I can... And when, you know, I go into puppy farms and I see these really damaged dogs that are trapped and confined with no escape, I can identify with that. So I can really identify with that feeling of helplessness and being trapped and abused. Um, And, you know, sometimes when I'm in the rescue community with people, I think we can all identify... Rescuers can identify Mm -hmm. with a damaged animal, but, you know, we've, that's sort of that common thread that binds us all together, that we've got, that we can really look into the eyes of a damaged animal and understand them and have empathy um, and that need to help them and, and get them out of that situation. What happened to Oscar? After 18 months, after he was returned, um, I managed to get him back, wow. which was an absolute miracle. Um, because I'd been doing this for 18 years, I had a lot of sources in the industry and I had put the word out there that if ever anyone saw this little dog, could, you know, please let me know. I'm going to try and get this little dog back. Um, and I got a call in about May of 2011 that someone had seen Oscar um, in the same puppy farm in the same shed and that there may be an opportunity to get him back and I was to keep my eye on the trading post. <laughs> so every day I was logging into trading post and I saw this ad for a red poodle for sale for $200 um, and other dogs available. I knew this was the puppy farmer where Oscar was at. So I got a friend to ring up and pose as a buyer. Um, the owners weren't there. They were going overseas, but they had arranged for someone else to show us this dog. Um, so... I went along with my friend and walked straight back into the same shed that I'd been in 18 months earlier and there was Oscar in exactly the same cage he was in. Um, So the only way we could get him out was to offer to buy him and they wanted $400 for him. So we brought Oscar and we brought 
the red poodle that was advertised on the trading post for 200 and another dog for 200. So those three dogs came out with me. And over a period of eight to 12 months, we negotiated with that puppy farmer to surrender every single dog because I didn't want my money going to fuel this industry. Um, So we were able to close her down after a year and she surrendered nearly 80 dogs to us over the period of a year and we actually closed her down. Can you tell us what a puppy farm is and how did someone like Oscar end up in one? So a puppy farm is a commercial business set up to breed dogs to supply the pet industry with cute fluffy puppies. Um, It's a commercial landscape. It's much the same as you walk into a piggery and you see pigs lined up in stalls or you walk into a battery hen shed and see chickens lined up in battery hen cages. I can walk into a puppy farm and there'll be a 100 female dogs in a shed in various stages of pregnancy or giving birth or nurturing a litter of puppies. Um, And that's what a puppy farm is. It's a commercial enterprise. Are they still legal? They are. They're they're still legal um, in every state of Australia. Victoria has recently implemented some of the most progressive legislation and for the first time um, they've implemented a cap on the number of dogs puppy farmers are allowed. So currently you're allowed, you just have to apply to council to get a permit to run a puppy farm and you can have as many dogs as you like. So the average puppy farm has around 200 dogs, but there, I have been on puppy farms that have five or 600 dogs. Um, so the, obviously the more dogs these puppy farms have, the more money they're making. So with the Victorian legislation, they have brought in a cap where puppy farmers are, are not allowed to have more than 10 female dogs. So this is taking away the financial viability away from puppy farms. They're not going to make much money from 10 female dogs compared to 200 female dogs. I have witnessed, you know, different types of puppy farms where where some are in raised wire cages on wire floor so the waste falls through to the ground and that's just simply so the puppy farmer's job is easier. He comes in the morning and hoses out under the cages. I've seen them in dirt pens. I've seen them in pens surrounded by electric wires to stop them digging out. I've seen them in concrete stalls just lined up. Um, and I've, I've seen dogs laying dead in these cages with puppies stuck in the birth canal. A lot of animals will give birth overnight mm. and overnight was when there's no staff, the, the puppy farmers are asleep. So these dogs are left to struggle alone overnight and anything can go wrong. Um, and I've seen, you know, horrible things which the industry have a turn, maternal cannibalisation. And when a dog is so severely stressed and anxious and feels it can't look after or raise or nurture its pups, it will kill them and eat them. Um, so I've, I've witnessed all of these horrible things mm. in puppy farms. Well, believe it or not, the topic today is talking about love and the relationship that we have with dogs. And I, what you're talking about, it doesn't show the best side of people, but we do want to talk about the wonderful relationship that dogs provide for us and, and how that can be mutual. And I know most of us see ourselves as dog lovers, but do you think many people buying a puppy from, say, the internet, realising that they could be supporting these sorts of trades? 
Yeah, I think that's um, one benefit the puppy farmers have that a lot of people just aren't aware. And so their businesses are able to flourish and hide behind the internet, which is the largest pet shop window we have. Mm. Um, So it's very, very difficult for people that are in the market to get a new companion animal to try and navigate their way through and try and avoid these puppy farms. Um, And it's, it's hard for people who even are aware about puppy farms to avoid buying from them. Um, let alone people that just have no idea that, that we are factory farming companion animals in this country. So it's very, very difficult. I remember many, many years ago going into a pet shop in Melbourne and there are all these puppies lined in little enclosures and there was this little one little dog that my heart completely fell for and I wanted to take him home. But I knew in the back of my mind that if I took him home, I was just funding this industry. I loved dogs so much that I knew that if I bought that dog, I wasn't actually doing what was right by dogs in general. And that was a difficult decision for me to make. Do you think lots of people fall for that, knowing that they want to help that immediate dog, but actually they're they're not really helping dogs in general? It's a real confliction. I... Suffer from that question. too, you know, when I was walking around, you know, v- you Victoria. You them all, don't you? Yeah, exactly. But you're actually making things worse. When it was legal to sell puppies in pet shops and I was always going into pet shops as part of my investigation work, you know. God, how did you do it, that? It's heartbreaking to walk away from some of these little puppies. They're absolutely gorgeous and you can see why people buy them. Mm. And, and you know, they're a great marketing tool. That's why they're sitting in glass windows at the front of the shop. It draws people in. Um and it's a real, you feel really conflicted having to not buy it and walk away knowing that that's the best possible thing you can do for that dog mm. is to walk away. And it's the same when I go into puppy farms. You know, I walk into a shed with a hundred dogs taking photos and video and the worst thing I can do is make eye contact with these dogs because I have to emotionally shut down in order to photograph them because that's evidence. That's the evidence I need in order to save all of them in the shed, not just the one or two that I want to pick up and walk away with. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really, really difficult to find that balance of trying to do the best thing for the dogs. Sometimes love is bigger than just that one individual, isn't it? Making those sacrifices for the betterment of an entire species of animal. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of people don't understand that. You know, when we report on stories of, of puppy farms we've been into, we usually get one or two people saying, how could you just photograph it? Why didn't you save it? You're as bad as the puppy farmer. And it's like, well, hang on, I was standing in a shed with 200 dogs. Which one do I rescue and which one do I walk away from? You know, my job is to look at the bigger picture and say, well, what is the best thing I can do for every single one of these dogs to get them out of this situation? Have you noticed when you've seen dogs that have been taken from a really cruel existence and then been just given a little bit of love, that transformation from that sadness to that happiness? Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me how forgiving dogs are. You know, when I, there was one time I went onto a a puppy farm and this is many years ago. Um, It was one of the biggest puppy farms I've been on. They actually had a permit for 560 female dogs. And I was just wandering around in and out of the pens and there was this one little dog that caught my eye and she was just cowering up the back of her pen and I was just standing there trying to capture that moment on video and then all of a sudden she started crawling on the ground towards me and licked my feet 
And I thought, it just shattered me because I thought this dog has every reason to hate me, the way humans have treated her. And yet here she is crawling on the ground and licking my feet. Like she's so forgiving and rescue dogs are, you know, mm. we, when, when they're rescued from terrible situations, they have every reason not to like humans, what they've been through, but they're so forgiving. It's mm. unbelievable. They give us this unconditional love, but do you think that they can experience the emotion of love themselves? Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, I think you can see that in the way, you know, our pets interact with us um, and want to be around us. I think they can def- they definitely know what when they're loved and when they're looked after and cared for. Mm. Do you think things are getting better for dog welfare over time? I think they are. I think... Um, you know, with with the legislation passing in Victoria, that in itself has raised even more awareness, um, especially amongst different state governments. They've all been watching Victoria and what's been mm-hmm. happening. Um, and the Western Australian government, I've been working with them for the last year and they're looking at implementing similar legislation. So I think just the fact that legislation passed in Victoria has increased awareness, um, especially among those in power that have the ability to make changes and do something. They're starting to stand up and listen. I know in my job as a dog behaviourist, I always ask people, where did you get your dog from? And when they have bought them from a, a pet shop, you know, in the past or uh, online, they'll always sort of hold their head down in shame because they kind of know that they probably should have done more research, but they don't know how, I think. What sort of advice do you give people who want to buy a puppy? How can they do that ethically? Yeah, I have no problem with um, people buying puppies because um, we're fortunate to have a lot of good registered breeders around mm-hmm. and there's there's a body overseeing that and in Victoria it's called Dogs Victoria. So when people come to me and say we want to buy a specific breed of pu- puppy, where do we go? I always refer them back to Dogs Victoria mm-hmm. um, and get a list of, of breeders that specialise in that particular breed. Um, but I also warn them that just because you're registered doesn't mean you're ethical. To always go to the place where the puppy is born and raised see the puppy interacting with its mum and its litter mates. Um, The sign of a good breeder is they will drill you. They will ask you lots of questions because they want to make sure that their puppy's not only going to the right home, but a good home for that particular breed, that it will fit in with your family life. And that's the sign of a good good breeder if they ask you lots of questions. Your grandson is fostering a dog at the moment. How old is your grandson? He's five. And he's helping to train yes, dogs. Yes, yes. Um, a friend of mine runs a, a rescue group and had rescued um, two, a, a Chihuahua and a Maltese that were a bonded pair. They couldn't be separated. Their elderly owner went into a nursing home and had to surrender her dogs. So my daughter and my grandson, who's five years old, are fostering these two little ones um, that can't be separated. They're very, very um, attached to each other. So I'm getting lots of um, photos via text from my grandson showing me how he's feeding them and taking them for walks um, and he's making their bed in the morning. Um, So it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing to see my grandson actually carry this on and and learn from these two little rescue dogs. I think a grandchild of you doesn't really have a choice but to be incredibly (laughs) empathic and caring. But it is amazing to think of a child, a human child, in terms of their brain development as a five-year-old, their cognitive understanding of empathy is, is not as developed as an adult, but that dog seems to be bringing out things that a child 
may otherwise not develop until later in life, like responsibility or care or thinking about others' needs. Can can you talk more about how your grandson or, or others have become better people through caring for dogs? Yeah, and, and my grandson too, he understands that these two dogs love each other mm. and can't be separated. And when they are, you know, they get frightened and anxious. So he's, you know, he's been learning that and being very mindful that when, you know, the dogs are outside in the backyard that they can still see each other that he's not playing with one and not the other, um, that they're always together. So, you know, I think that's a great lesson that he's learned from from these two little dogs. Do you think people who have been abused or who have had a sad childhood or have experienced some trauma in their life who don't believe in love anymore, when they meet a dog, that can change that? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I think, as I said before, that, you know, we can identify with a a dog that's that's been through a lot, that's been damaged, that's been trapped or abused. Um, And I think, you know, putting those two together, they're great. Dogs are great healers. Um, And, you know, people get a lot of enjoyment out of of these dogs and they can heal themselves. Um, You know, when I rescued Oscar, I was a very different person to what I am today. Um, Before Oscar, I was just constantly angry Mm. um, and throwing up these graphic images of cruelty saying, this is terrible, why aren't aren't people doing something about it? Um, But Oscar sort of changed me. Um, I became much more calmer and I realised I didn't need to shout to be heard. Mm. I could be, you know, calm and um, non-confrontational. So, they're some of the things that Oscar taught me. Everything I've ever learned, I've learned from a dog, really. <laughs> I've always said that to people. Dogs are great teachers. They're great healers. How did Oscar do that for you? Before I started Oscar's Law and rescued Oscar, I had um, I was just campaigning on my own against puppy farms and I had a website called Prisoners for Profit and it's still up today and it's a little bit embarrassing, so don't, <laughs> please don't look at it. Um, but it's a very dark place my writing, you could tell I was i was angry. I was infuriated at this injustice that we were factory farming dogs and I was writing blogs and posting photos of graphic cruelty um, and demanding action. It was, and it was, it wasn't a friendly site where you could direct your family to or your friends to. It was just graphic and angry and confrontational. If you compare that to the Oscars Law website, um, it's more empowering. There's you you can you can it's a website you can direct your grandmother to. <laughs> There's no graphic cruelty up there. Um, you know, of course, we need to, to tell the truth and reality. Um, but there's it's more about here's how you can help. Here's what you can do. Um, and Oscar's such a tiny little dog. He's 1.9 kilos. He's teeny tiny dog um, and he's just so very calm and unassuming and tiny and so yeah he's the one that sort of changed me into this angry raging shouty person to a more calmer demeanor um, a more positive way of campaigning a more empowering way of campaigning um, and just to try and educate people that the power is in their hands. Is that something that you think people who do have a little bit of rage in them or are having a bad day, that they could just look to their dog who is calm and accepting of life as it is to improve their own state of mind? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you uh, if they look around them, people will not react to you shouting at them or being angry or saying, you know, don't you do this and pointing the finger and um, blaming people um, because, you know, a lot of people just don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. If people are going to pet shops to buy puppies or going onto the trading post, They don't know about these puppy farms, so it's no use blaming the public. The public are the ones that have the power to change this. It's about educating and empowering them in a really positive way um, that engages them, doesn't turn them away or disengage them. I'm Laura V, and you're listening to Dognitive Therapy. If you enjoy this series, give it a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show for free. Once you got Oscar back, he must have suffered a whole range of trauma, as did you. How did you get him back to his best self after all that had happened? Yeah, when I first um, rescued him back in 2011, um, he was five years old. So he had spent his entire life in a shed, just being a stud dog in in that one cage. And, And male dogs in puppy farms suffer the worst because they never get touched or human handling at all. They stay in that one cage and the females are swapped around to different areas. So he had never been handled by humans. Um, He'd never been in a house. So things like the kettle boiling, the phone ringing, the TV, the toilet flushing, a door shutting, all of that was terrifying, terrifying and new. So he was just terrified. He would shake. Um, He was very shut down. Everything was just frightening. So the first few weeks, we didn't leave the house at all. It was just trying to get him confident and safe in one room of the house. So I'd set up a crate in the corner of the lounge room with the door open so he could come and go as he pleased. And for the first month, he probably never left the room. It was just the lounge room in his crate. When he got frightened, he could retreat to his crate. Mm -hmm. Um, We then started doing things like I put a collar on him or a harness and he hated it. Um, but he just, I got him used to just wearing a collar and a harness in the lounge room. Um, then we started doing a lead around the lounge room. So everything was at his pace. Um, I wasn't forcing him to do anything. I didn't take him outside or in the car or on trips. I just wanted him to have a room in the house where he was safe um, in order to build his confidence. So that's what we worked on. And it took about six months before I could actually walk Oscar on a lead in public. Um, It was just really slow steps. But a lot of dogs don't even get to that stage. A lot of dogs we can rehabilitate to the stage where they're comfortable in a home environment, in their home, but they don't like going out in public. I have two dogs at home like that. I've had them for years and they love being at home and they feel safe and confident. But the minute I take them out in public, they just shut down. They don't enjoy it whatsoever. So we just leave those dogs at home. You know, that's where they're happy. That's where they're confident. Um, We've got friends that have taken on my rescue dogs and you know, they've had them for years and they still can't pick them up. They hate being picked up. Um, they don't like, you know, being picked up or carried around. They're quite happy to sit next to you, but the minute you look at them, Forget they it. don't like it. <laughs> so these are dogs that are, that are rehomed with really understanding families that know that that dog is happy just sitting by your feet, being with you in that moment. But 
you know, it might not want to be picked up or, or taken for a walk on a lead. But, you know... That's that's what the dog's happiness is. And and it takes a really understanding family to take on a, a puppy farm survivor because they are special needs. They do have these funny behaviours where they might not rehabilitate fully, where you can take them out on, on walks or to public events and things like that. But, but they'll get to the stage where they're just happy to be around you. But that's the thing about love, isn't it? When you when you love someone or something, you accept them for what they can and can't do and you make sacrifices and you work with them at their own pace. And it sort of brings you back to this idea of, of love and how having a dog and, and helping a dog in need can actually make you a better person. If you show a dog love, acceptance and kindness, do they show that back to you? Yes, I think I think they do, um, and it's and it's on their terms. Especially a puppy farm survivor. We've got I've got one um, foster carer who's had a puppy farm survivor for eight months now. We rescued this little girl eight months ago, and she just posted on Instagram yesterday that um, the little dog wagged its tail for the first time ever. Wow! So that was just this amazing milestone. We were all like, "Oh my god, it's wagged its tail! Isn't this fantastic?" You know. So it does take a long time. Um, but if you allow that dog to rehabilitate in its own time and not force anything on that dog, you know, in time, it, they'll come back. They'll come out of wherever they've been. For those listening at home who have a dog who's suffering from a quirky behaviour or has some sort of behavioural problems, what advice would you give them to help overcome that? Um, I'd, I'd first um, get them to look at their own behaviour around the dog and whether they're putting too much pressure on the dog um, because a lot of times that'll fix the problem. Um, but, you know, we have had um, phone calls and, and contact from people that have that have dogs with challenging behaviours um, and we always refer them to a, to a trained animal behaviourist if they are having problems. It makes me think about the expectations that we have on dogs. Sometimes we want them to be perfectly behaved all the time like robots and we don't realise that they're intelligent, emotional beings. And do you think maybe we should just ease up on them a bit? Absolutely. You know, like humans, like I don't want to go for a walk every single day. I'm a bit of a homebody, you Mm. know. So some dogs don't want to go for a walk every single day and, you know, go to the park and be around other dogs in that heightened state of anxiety. Some dogs are homebodies. So if, you know, they don't enjoy it, that's just the dog that you've got. You know, we do put a lot of pressure on dogs to conform. You said after rescuing Oscar that he made you a better person, a calmer person. Was it just watching him and emulating those behaviours or was it more caring for him that improved who you were? I think it was both. When I first rescued Oscar, he was in a lot of pain. He had terrible veterinary issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, He was very malnourished. Due to the malnourishment, he had really thin skin and his matted fur was pulling on that, causing skin tears. So his whole little body was covered in skin tears, infected skin tears. His ears were completely blocked full of gunk. He had dental disease and gum disease. So he was in a lot of pain and needed a lot of care and pain medication. Um, And I knew where I'd been, where he'd come from. I'd stood in his shed, in his pen. So I knew where he had come from and the suffering he had gone through. Um, But the fact that he trusted me and he chose me and he allowed me to 
look after him and rehabilitate him um, and the courage he showed in that, like from where he'd been, that everything was so frightening. He was so shut down and abused and the courage that it takes for these dogs to rehabilitate and to come out of their shell, to not be shut down and trust us. I think um, that's an amazing experience to watch, a, a dog on its healing journey. It's just incredible. And when you're part of that and they've chosen you, it's an incredible privilege um, and it does have a, you know, a really lasting effect on your life. Um, and so, yeah, you want to be a better person when you've experienced that. And that's, as I said, everything I've ever learned a dog has taught me. I find in my line of work, a lot of people are so heavily focused on what they want from their dog. Do you think people should be asking their dogs what they want from us a little bit more often? Yeah, I'd I'd absolutely um, suggest listening, just listening, um, because a lot of people just don't stop and listen. They get a dog and they've got these preconceived ideas um, and put too much expectations on their dog. But just to stop and listen, um, I think is really, really important. What makes you so attuned to what a dog wants? I think it goes back to the fact that I can identify with them um, and I have empathy for them and I just take the time to make that connection with them. Um, I don't have any preconceived ideas on, you know, I see the dog as an individual um, and I just take the time to sort of make that connection um, and again goes back to that I can identify, you know, I'm drawn to the dog. When I go into a puppy factory, the dogs I'm drawn to are the ones, are not the ones that are barking and making a lot of noise. They're the silent ones, the ones that can't make eye contact with me. They're the ones I'm drawn to. They're the ones I identify with the most. Um, And for me, it's about trying to make a connection with them and on their terms and to really just stop and allow them to be in that moment and make that connection. Because that was you, wasn't it, at some point? I was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I, I know what it's like to be um, disregarded and downtrodden um, and, and trapped in a situation that you feel that there's no way out. Um, so I, I, I have that connection. Um, and, I, and I think if, you know, people look internally at their life experiences or their relationships with other people and people that they love and what they expect from them um, or what they want to do for them, um, that helps in identifying and listening um, to your dog. Do you think we're really a nation of dog lovers? I do. I absolutely do. I wasn't expecting you to say that. That's that's (laughs) a surprise. What do you mean by that? Um, 99% of people are good. We are a nation of people who love our pets. Um, And people, when they learn the truth, they want to do the right thing. They want to avoid puppy farms. As I said before, people don't know what they don't know. But inherently, people are good and kind. Um, You know, there's only a very small percentage of people who are very, very cruel to animals. They're a very small percentage. Would you have thought that before you met Oscar? No, no, completely the other way around. I would have said (laughs) 99% of people are cruel. (laughs) We're horrible. (laughs) But no, in my experience over the the, the 20 odd odd years and what Oscar has has changed me into... um, I've really analysed people and I've met amazing people in rescue, super amazing people that do incredible things on a daily basis. Um, And, you know, as I said, 99% of people in Australia love their pets, want to do the right thing, want to make kind choices. 
What are some things that you would recommend people at home do to show or to prove to their dog that they really do genuinely love them? Oh, well, there's lots of things. Number one is to is to listen to them. Um, and if you really love your dog, you will want to to make your dog happy, do things with your dog that obviously the dog is, is enjoying. Um, but I think the best thing you can do overall for dogs is to educate others and empower others and pass on any knowledge you have to other people, um, especially if it's going to improve the life of dogs overall. Is Oscar the love of your life? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, he's he is my person. <laughs> I get that. Chest yep. is mine. Yeah. Okay, so how falling in love is like owning a dog. First of all, it's a big responsibility, especially in a city like Melbourne. So think long and hard before deciding on love. On the other hand, love gives you a sense of security. When you're walking down the street late at night and you have a leash on love, ain't no one gonna mess with you. Because crooks and muggers think love is unpredictable. Who knows what love could do in its own defense. On cold winter nights, love is warm. It lies between you and lives and breathes and makes funny noises. Love wakes you up all hours of the night with its needs. It needs to be fed so it will grow and stay healthy. Love doesn't like being left alone for long, but come home and love is always happy to see you. It may break a few things accidentally in its passion for life, but you can never be mad at love for long. Is love good all the time? No, no. Love can be bad, bad love, bad, very bad love. Love makes messes. Love leaves you little surprises here and there. Love needs lots of cleaning up after. Sometimes you just want to get love fixed. Sometimes you want to roll up a piece of newspaper and swat love on the nose. Not so much to cause pain, just to let love know, don't you ever do that again. Sometimes love just wants to go out for a nice long walk because love loves exercise. It will run you around the block and leave you panting breathless, pull you in different directions at once, or wind itself around and around you until you're all wound up and you cannot move. But love makes you meet people wherever you go. People who have nothing in common but love stop and talk to each other on the street. Throw things away and love will bring them back again and again and again. But most of all, love needs love. Lots of it. And in return, love loves you and never stops. That poem was written by Taylor Marley and was read at Freddie's wedding. You can check out all of Taylor's work at taylormarley.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-M-A-L-I.com. This show was written by me, Laura V, and my amazing producer, Dave Swalinski. Audio production is by Darcy Thompson. Executive producers are Jennifer Goggin and Grant Tothill. Special thanks to Blue Thumb Online Art Gallery for letting Freddie and Grungle come out to play. We promise they were doing work. Probably. If you want to see additional content, photos and videos of some of the gorgeous dogs in this series, go to our Instagram page at podcast1au or check us out on Facebook. Dognitive Therapy is a Podcast One production recorded in the Podcast One studios, Melbourne. 